Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we are thankful for this place, thankful for the enduring witness of the gospel on this corner for the last 185 years, and thankful that, that we get to worship in a place that has that kind of history of your work, and we are thankful today for the chance to, to once again on a Sunday be gathered together to sing and to pray, to open your word together, and to be able to, to hear you and your voice to us through it. Father, we pray that you would, you would help us, you would you still our minds and give our hearts openness and softness to your word today. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it is full-on winter here in D.C., um, more so than it's been for the last couple of years. It's, we had snow a couple of days this past week. It's still snowy out there, and it's still pretty snow, which doesn't usually happen. Um, it's been a couple of years. We, I know it's been a couple of years since we last had snow, because the last time we had snow, we bought snowball makers, and we have not used them once until this week. Um, and a couple of them got broken, but one of them was used this week. And so a beautiful interruption into our lives this past week. And one of the things that I really love about living in D.C. And, and have loved for a long time now is that we have a true four seasons in this town that it's, it, it often works kind of like clockwork, that summers are hot from June into early September. Every year in August, people are like, why is it still hot? Well, because summer goes into September, and it, sh it surely does here. But by the third week of September, we roll into fall, and as December ends and January begins, it turns into winter, and by March, we're headed into spring and anticipating the cherry blossoms. Um, I love that because I came from a place that essentially has unending winter a one-week spring, a beautiful couple of months for summer, and then you're right back into winter again. <laughs> and so the, our physiology gets affected by the seasons. In winter, we need more sleep. There's less daylight, so we spend more time indoors. There's food and drink that changes with the seasons. It's not often in July in D.C. that I think, you know what I really would love today is beef stew. <laughs> Because there's something great about being able to enjoy different things and their seasonality. There are good and simple pleasures in our lives that we enjoy throughout the year. And that brings us to our study in Ecclesiastes. We, we've spent the last two weeks, today is week three in our series, in this important book in the middle of the Bible that seems pretty elusive as well. That there, but it, over the past two weeks, we've covered the first two chapters and seen in section one of Ecclesiastes, this first section of this book, that everything under the sun is a vapor, a mist. Like if you go outside right now and breathe, you will see your breath and the vapor will disappear. 
And so it comes to the conclusion at the end of chapter 2, and it goes on to say, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of his toil. This I saw was from the hand of God. And so we've had this refrain of meaninglessness and of vapor that everything is a chasing after the wind, and then we die, every single one of us. But it comes to this conclusion that there are simple things in life to enjoy, and even that is a gift from God. Well, as we head into the second section of this book, it really, we turn now to an emphasis of, on God's design for the world. How does this place that is created, fun- how does it work? How does it function? What are the, the patterns and rhythms that we can see if, that our creator God has established? We'll see a little bit of a shift in language where almost every time, or consistently through the first two chapters, Koheleth, this teacher, used the phrase under the sun, and you'll hear in verse 1 that it talks about every matter under heaven. And so there's at least an acknowledgement of a creator God here. But even in that, we see a perspective that is removed from God's direct interaction in the world as Koheleth works out the fullness of human wisdom and understanding. And so today we come to what I think I got corrected by my daughter week one when I said, I think the most well-known part of Ecclesiastes is that everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And she said, Dad, there's a whole song about that one section, and she's right. And so chapter three, there is a season, turn, 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 from the birds back in the 1960s. It'll be familiar to many of you, but we're going to see today in context the call that we have and the challenge we have in this, in this place we live. So chapter three, this is where we begin. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones in, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time for hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that every, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which already has been, that which already is to be, already has been. And God God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. 
And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. And who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their, their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so there is a season under heaven. You can hear, I hope you can hear, even as I talked about that this new section talks about the created world and how, the, how this place functions and that there is a God that created it, but that there are cycles and seasons. And you have this whole list that, you know, time to be born and die, to plant and pluck up, to kill and to heal, to break down and build up, to weep and to laugh, to mourn and to dance. And it goes on and on. And so and there's, there's ways that you can hear this passage depending on the angle and the heart that you come at it with. You could hear some of these things and do a full breakdown of this and say, well, let's talk about when are the times to kill and the time to heal. But I don't think that's actually being totally faithful to, to the text. One of the things we talked about at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes is that we have to understand the different genres of literature within Scripture and understand that what Koheleth, this teacher, is trying to accomplish through what has been written down and the teachings that we're reading. And so if we come to this and look for the time to kill, we're probably not actually going to be in line with God's word when we're told, thou shalt not kill. And so what is it that he's saying here? What is it that he's going to here? Well, again, we need to be reminded, we need to remember that his perspective that he has expressed here is that which is under heaven. That we need to remember that Koheleth, this, this, that in Ecclesiastes, we have kind of the meandering thoughts of a philosopher king. That in the ESV, it's translated the preacher, which is fine. That really isn't a direct word for us. I, I think we need to think of this Kohelet figure, this, whether it's Solomon or someone like Solomon. So that it's really a philosopher king. And as a philosopher, he exposes truth. And it says at the end of the, of the book that he said a lot of things that are true, but it also reminds us the words of the wise are like goads. And so they poke at us, they prod at us, they make us uncomfortable and force us to go into places we otherwise wouldn't go. But that there are fixed truths in Scripture that are beyond what is written here. And as you read Ecclesiastes, you can hear the voices back and forth. Where Koheleth seems to be answering his own arguments. And so it's more like a seminar than a lecture. If you ever took classes that were a seminar instead of a lecture, you'll know that there, that means there's interaction. People, students will present thoughts and papers, and there's interaction and back and forth that way. The difficult thing is that when you have something in written form, it's just one person writing it. And so this is really, you can almost imagine this as a one-man show. 
like a one-man play, and you can hear Koheleth talking back and forth to himself. And so in chapter 2, he ends by saying, listen, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat or drink and find enjoyment in all of his work, and this is a gift from God. But on the other hand, look at this world. Nothing lasts, and everything repeats. There's a season for everything, and it cycles and rotates. God made everything beautiful in its time. He put eternity into, our, into man's hearts. And God's work endures forever, and yet man can't find out what God has done from beginning to end. You know, we perceive that there's nothing better to be the, than to be joyful and do good as long as you live and eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That's God's gift to man. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. And he's done it so that people fear before him. But that which has already been, that which has already, is to be, already has been, God seeks to, you know, what has been driven away. That, that ultimately, though, we all, and then he counters that. Ultimately, though, we're all going to die. And we return to dust. So are we actually even better than the beasts? And so you can hear this push and pull going back and forth. And it can be maddening trying to read this as, as a proclamation of truth at every line. Because then you would have contradictory messages to say, well, which is it? Are we, do we have this gift from God under heaven that we should be pursuing? That these are good things? That God has put eternity in our hearts and we can enjoy the, what we eat and drink and the work that we do? Or is it that we're in despair and everything is like dust and we're no better than the beasts and the animals? There's not an answer because this is made to make you think. And again, the first two chapters show us a perspective totally apart from God. With life under the sun. Now we have a perspective that includes God, but kind of as a distant, aloof deity who's not particularly involved in our lives. And so what we get in chapter 3 is a perspective that shows us what it looks like if you live your life with a perspective that is limited only to what is here and now. Maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't. But you look around, and as you look at the world around you, this God is not involved personally at all. And you start to wonder, like, is God testing us? Is this just some cosmic game? Like, how, what are we supposed to do with this world that we live in? In chapter 2, we saw the extent of human pursuits that this Koheleth figure went and pursued all the pleasure and indulgence he could and said, I'm going to satisfy every desire in my heart, but it came up empty he pursued wise living and said, all right, it's obviously better to be wise than to be foolish. But he, so he pursued wisdom and then realized that it's all vanity, a striving after the wind. Because the same thing happens whether wise or fool. So he said, I'm going to work as hard as I can. But came to the point where he said, even my work, it's chasing after the wind. It's a vapor. Because who knows, all the stuff I have to work for, I might leave it to a fool. And I can't take it with me. And so this repetitiveness, this grind of life can start to feel trapping and oppressive. And he's saying, this is the world that we live in. And so there is a season, the first section here, Koala says, there's no progress here. We're not actually moving forward. Life is an unending cycle of seasons. And you live long enough, and you can start to feel a lot like Kohelet does. You look at things and you go, okay, there's another war, another rumor of war. There'll come a time for peace, maybe. 
it all just cycles around again. And it can become exhausting because God has put something in our hearts that says there should be progress toward a better end, that we should see things getting better. You know, this was like the, the great optimism of the Industrial Revolution was that humanity was achieving and was going to bring about this kind of utopian experience and existence, but all we've done is create more effective ways to kill more people more quickly. And the same things exist that have for all of human history. The repetitiveness and grind are exhausting. He said, okay, well, that, what about purpose? If we have... The thing, we look for progress, we look for purpose, and Kohelet says there's no purpose in this life either. Again, I know that Ecclesiastes is a wonderful, cheery start to every Sunday morning right now. <laughs> he says there's no purpose. Why? Because we all die in the end. Man and beast are no different. If there's nothing beyond this life, then, and there's nothing under heaven, this is the fullness of the wisdom under heaven, then, then he steps back and he says, how are we supposed to know that anything's different? He says, none of us has actually died. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So there's nothing better than to rejoice in his work, for that's your lot, and who can bring you to see what will be after you? But he says, there's no advantage. All men and beasts, men and women and animals have the same breath. There's no advantage over the animals and the beasts. It's all a vapor. It's all vanity. Because all of us are from dust, and to dust all of us will return. And so again, here's the perspective under heaven saying, okay, we might, what is it if we don't have God, if we don't have a concept of the image and likeness of God that brings people their inherent dignity and worth, then what is it that actually separates any of us from any of the animals? What is it that separates human beings at all from the rest of the natural world? Because if there's no divine creator, or if there's no creator that's involved at all in this world, then there becomes no point, no progress, no purpose, and ultimately no reason for justice or a call for justice. Because what is justice if there is no objective moral standard rooted in the holiness of God? on its own, a perspective limited to life on this planet has no grounds to cry out against injustice and oppression. Because without God and his involvement in this world, we are left with survival of the fittest, dictating the rule of power. You realize that all of human history is a pursuit of power that can only be sustained by pressing other people down into suffering. What is the history we study? If you go and study world history, it's all about the conflicts, the wars, all told by the winning side. And so all of human history has this. This is why, if you want to press this philosophically, you, have, you see this, that this is one of the big problems that exists in almost every philosophical pursuit is what is the actual purpose? Science can't answer purpose for us. And science and faith aren't opposed. Science makes observations about the real world. And so it's an important reality to understand the world that we live in. Philosophy is when we say, okay, what does this mean for us? And so whether you end up in Stoicism or Epicureanism or Gnostic dualism, whatever stream you go down, this is what philosophy is ultimately trying to pursue, is what is our purpose here? What is the meaning that we can find? 
And without God, it's hard not to land with Nietzsche, saying, why not, why don't we lift up the Ubermensch, the Superman? Because ultimately, life is about the pursuit of power and control. And who knows what happens in the end? None of us has died, so do we just return to dust? These questions are the things that Koheleth is raising for us to make us uncomfortable. Now, to these things, there are biblical answers. Like, why is it that we return to dust? What is it that sets human beings apart? Well, that's rooted in Scripture in Genesis chapter 1 at the very beginning. When God makes, creates human beings, he says in Genesis chapter 1, He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over livestock and all of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, this immediately is a distinction between humanity and beasts. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so human dignity and worth is rooted right here in creation, in scripture. And, and, And even in our society, this is what our understanding of human dignity and worth is rooted in. This is what makes the current civil rights movements so different than the civil rights movements of the 1960s, is that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and many of the the heroes of the civil rights era were rooted deeply in scripture in this concept of the Imago Dei, calling out to a God who can move and act and trying to bring biblical understandings of dignity and justice to bear in real life. But if we lose that foundation, then how are we any different? How are we not just another species in the animal kingdom? Well, we do return to dust, and God did say that. After the man and the woman rebelled against him, in Genesis chapter 3, he says explicitly, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God gave death as a merciful stopping point to the living in this world. The consequence of our rebellion against God. But again, if you don't have that foundation, then Koheleth has to be right. Life is an unending cycle of seasons and then we die. And this is something that we see all around us. We are in a constant question, a constant battle right now and all the time of, of what does it look like to treat people as those who bear God's image and likeness? What does it mean to give people dignity and honor in a world right now that has no room for any of that, that it, at every chance people will take shots at each other and we, don't, we, are, no, we are past a point of being able to d- dialogue about ideas and ideals in the public square. Instead now we go, jump immediately to uh, character assassination, to demeaning people, to undercutting their dignity and value. And in the meantime, we have a tendency to give more value to non-human creatures than to humans. I know this is going to tread on some thin ice. 
Um, do you understand? And I, I love our dog. I love our puppy. And I know that it, they are, we already, Alyssa's already mad at Fozzie because she's like, you're going to die someday, and I don't want that to happen. But we have an obsession in this country with pets, and I really think in, on Capitol Hill, for many of the residents, our pets become more than people. Americans spent $143.6 billion on their pets in 2023. In, 2020, in 2012, it was $52 billion. I'm not an economist, but that sounds like almost three times the amount. In, tw in 2012, $6.2 billion was spent on grooming and treats, which was more than Facebook's ad revenue at the time. I couldn't find the numbers for 2023. Now, again, I love our dog, and he is, I, I have a picture because I talk about it. I've been talking about him lately. Like, he, he's the cutest creature on earth. Um, <laughs> My, my family's mad at me for saying that. I'm like, cute isn't like a, val a dignity value. That's, he can be the cutest thing on earth and not have that mean he's greater than you. But he is like a living stuffed animal. Like the next picture, he, he really just, <laughs> he's a warm, cuddly, soft, stuffed animal. And I love him. And biblically, we're called to be stewards of God's good creation. But we are at a point where Concern for the ethics of animal treatment often is greater than our concern for the ethics of how people are treated. And we've got something backwards. And so Kohelet's right. Without God in the picture, without the, an understanding of the Mago Dei, we are dust, and dust we will turn. We are no different than the beasts. All right, third, he says there is no justice. And he goes on to say it's better to not have been born at all. Did you catch that? He starts right at the beginning of, it's verse 16. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. So that almost sounds like hopeful, right? Like, well, I see this because even in the halls of justice, it's wicked. Even in the, in the halls of righteousness, it's wicked. So there's all this evil around. So God's got to bring judgment eventually, right? Because there's a season for everything. A season for wickedness, a season for justice. Like, if that's got to come around eventually. But he goes on in chapter 4, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and there's no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there's power, and there's no one to comfort them. And I thought, you know what? Those who are dead, are already dead, are more fortunate than the living who are still alive and have to see this. But even better is someone who hasn't been so that you never get exposed to the wickedness that is done here. This again brings us back that in Genesis chapter 3, I think we get, it can be confusing sometimes to be like, well, how was it so bad that God had one tree and they ate the apple? Like, is that, what was so wrong that we got into this situation and the brokenness of the world and the wickedness of humanity and the downfall of everything so that creation itself is groaning, longing for its redemption because they ate an apple or a pomegranate or whatever fruit it was. Why? God knew, do you remember what the tree was called, church? Yeah, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God created us without the capacity to have the knowledge of evil. That's why we can't handle it. 
That's why we can't handle and can't cope when somebody that we love and is close to us dies. Why we can't handle it and we can't cope when we suffer and when life doesn't go like we imagine it ought to go is because we are not created with the capacity to know evil. And so here Koheleth is right in saying, you look around you and you see the wickedness of this world and at this stage that we are so inundated, not just with the wickedness and injustice and oppression that happens in our neighborhoods or our city or a greater metro area or country, but we we are seeing it on a global scale all the time. And there's things that are fed to us as the major topics, but that, then if you really start to drill down and see what's happening worldwide and get into global news deeper than just the big story of the day, you'll see that it is an unending pursuit of more stories of injustice and of suffering. And so this has to change, right? And this is where, again, this shapes how we read the first half of this chapter. It can, the first part of this chapter can sound wonderful. That's why the birds wrote the song they did. And in his context, it, but it, and it's beautiful, and that song endures because this idea of, you know, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, it's not too late. Like this dream of that we, things will turn around and we will see the good come. But in context here, it's less beautiful, comforting, and wonderful and it's more despairing. That God has put eternity in our hearts, a clear sense that things are not as they ought to be, and we have the hope that we cling to, like Dr. King said, that the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends toward justice. And even Koheleth has that sense deep in his heart, God will bring justice, but how and when? And so it's fascinating right now to watch debates rage on on whether problems of this world are individual or systemic. Where does justice come from? Where does it start? And so uh, we have a tendency that this is why so often the right and the left talk past each other in discussions about how to bring solutions to this world, as if this becomes an either-or choice. Or on one side, you have people saying, no, this is, this is an individual issue and, and we need to deal only with people's hearts. And others saying, well, there are systems in place and structures in place that back these things up and that are the real issues. And if we don't address those, then it'll never change. And we, we, as if it's, again, as if it's either or. Koheleth is clear here. People are a mess. Individual wickedness destroys things. And sinful people set up our systems, our structures and our systems themselves are broken. And so on one side, you get antsy admitting that it is systemic, and on the other side, you squirm to admit that we as individuals are no better than anyone else. We just draw lines in different places. And there is no guarantee that any one of us would act righteously if given absolute power. In fact, human history shows the opposite. And so the reason we see such deep-rooted injustice from top to bottom throughout our society is because society is filled with and run by people who are broken and sinful. And so whatever it is you turn to to find hope and comfort, it will come to define you and lead to the exclusion of others. And then we get into these tribalisms, whether it's politics or even within religious tribalism, and you end up hating people as your enemies rather than pursuing them in love. And so this is the world we live in. But there's hope. Because we see here the despair comes that death exists and we all turn to dust. The hope we have is, that, is in the death of death and the death of Christ. This is a line from Puritan John Owen. 
who had a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And he said, it under, he underwent death that we might be delivered from death. The satisfaction made by Christ on the cross was a full, valuable compensation made to the justice of God for all the sins of all of those for whom he made satisfaction. By undergoing that same punishment for which, by reason of obligation that was upon them due to sin, they themselves were bound to undergo. See, the truth we have in Scripture that breaks in, the things that are fixed nails that we can cling to in the midst of the goads of Koheleth that push us into these places to acknowledge that under heaven, this is where we end. This is the conclusion, is that Christ's death broke this cycle that it did bring something different, that Jesus undid Adam's work. As we just read today in Romans chapter 5, as we stood and read together at the beginning of our service, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Do you, you know, just by the way, this is, it's always funny to me to, to read Adam was of the dust because in Hebrew, the word Adam is literally dirt. Like the man's name was mud. And so God says, you are Adam, and to Adam you will return. Like he's made from dust, formed from dust, he will return to dust, and his name is dirt. And so this first man, Adam, is from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all of those who are of the dust. That is us, you and me. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, what, what this author, of, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is that Jesus' death broke the cycle of something, that all of us are born into the line of Adam. Every one of us is, carries on that legacy of Adam's decision and Adam's sin, and we are sinners by nature and by choice. But Jesus' death changes everything because it breaks the cycle, and second, his death gives us life. It goes on in 1 Corinthians to say, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, saying this is what we are given in Christ. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable doesn't inherit the imperishable. And so there's a mystery. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed when Christ returns. That's when the perishable puts on the imperishable. Mortal puts on immortality. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' death conquers death. Back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death is not natural. We are not made to experience death. It is the greatest enemy that each one of us faces, and our own attempts at righteousness will fall woefully short. We will miss the mark continually. Our life is a test that will take us in cycles through the ups and downs. So Koheleth is right there, but the question is, can you see your own mortality? Can you see your own weakness? Can you see your own dustiness? And are you willing to turn to the one who has defeated death? Because the third truth we have is that Jesus' death extends mercy to us. And that his death in his resurrection 
guarantees justice. You see, the the truth is if we want God to be perfectly just, then every one of us will stand under his righteous and holy judgment. But God has mercy on us. It tells us this in Isaiah chapter 1. And this is a great reminder. It is the snow fell this week. I couldn't help but think of these chapters and these verses that I'm about to read. Because it is an image in Scripture that tells us so much about God's mercy for us. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. This is the the imagery that David calls on when he was caught in his own sin and confronted in his own sin with Bathsheba after Nathan the prophet confronted him and David repented and came before God saying, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Call us right. We are in a life of cycles and cycles and cycles, and then we die. And you look and you look at all the injustice around us, and our hearts cry out for something more because God has placed eternity in our hearts. We know that it's not right, but we also need God's mercy and to throw ourselves on his mercy if we're going to have hope. And God's mercy comes to us in Christ. It's Jesus' death that takes the penalty for the payment we owe. It's his death that, that holds off the justice we deserve. But then he also has the promise that he will be the righteous judge in the end. In Acts chapter 17, it says, it says to us, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent and he, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That means justice is coming, church. By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so this is the hope for us today is that Jesus frees us to enjoy every season. That there's nothing better to be joyful and do good. And understanding who Jesus is and what he has accomplished gives us a big picture perspective that gets beyond our circumstances so that whether you're experiencing birth or death, the coming of life or the the losing of life, the planting or the plucking up, a a time of killing or healing, of breaking down or building up, weeping or laughter, mourning or dancing, whether you're casting things out or gathering them in, whether you're embracing people or there's distance being created, whether you are seeking or losing, keeping or casting away, tearing or sowing, in silence or speaking, loving or or hating or being hated, in war or in peace, whatever you walk through, you can cling to the truth that Christ has broken the cycle for you. When you're brought low, abounding in plenty or in hunger, you can be freed. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, one of the most misused verses in scripture that I've done the same in my life, where Paul says in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, what he's saying there is not, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can go 
like, and, and accomplish anything I set my mind to. It's not saying that I could decide right now, you know what, I am going to hang up the pastorate and I am going to pursue my dream of an NFL career. And I think I can actually be, well, at this stage, probably an offensive lineman. <laughs> probably not. But what he's saying here is that whatever circumstance you're in, whatever the seasons of life bring you, that you can find joy and contentment because Christ is the one who gives us his strength. We can enjoy God's good gifts, whatever circumstances that we have in our lives, and rest in God's sovereignty and purpose and know that all things will be made beautiful in time. As it says in verse 11, that eternity is in our hearts for a reason because God put it there for us. And so we're called here to, in Ecclesiastes 3 to enjoy what we eat and what we drink and the work we set our hands to, in Christ, we are freed to enjoy those things to the fullest as we rest in his finished work for us. So in 1 Corinthians 10, it can tell us whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so looking at this life outside of God's intervening and intervening presence, there is no progress. Human history is just an ongoing cycle of seasons. But Jesus' death broke the cycle. You look at this world apart from God, and there is no purpose. We all die in the end. We're no different than the animals. But Jesus' death gives us life and shows us that we are worth God's son's death. You look at this world, and there is no justice. Just cycles of who's in power. And it's better not to have been born. But Jesus' death extends mercy to us. And his resurrection guarantees justice and life. And so, yeah, take a real look at the world around us. Ecclesiastes calls us to see everything in clarity and fullness so that we are forced to see the beauty of what we can cling to in the work of God that endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we have these longings within us, every one of us, and we look at this world and see the amount of suffering and wickedness and evil, and that, that yes, in the halls of justice, there is evil, that in the halls of righteousness, there is wickedness, that it can become hopeless as we look at this world and, and see that it, and study history and, and live through enough cycles that you start to feel like nothing is different. We have different names and different faces and different means by which some of the things happen, but in the end, we are just stuck in these unending cycles and seasons. So Father, we thank you that you broke in for us, that Jesus took on flesh and entered into this place for us and experienced the summer and the winter and the fall and the spring of life, not just in those physical seasons, but in the ups and downs and sufferings and pleasures and sorrows and joys of human existence. And that because Jesus died in our place and for our sin, that your mercy comes to us, washing us whiter than snow. I pray today that you would press into our hearts, expose that hole of the eternity that you've placed in us that can only be filled and satisfied by your presence. And give us the hope that all things will be made beautiful, all things will be made new, and that perfect justice and righteousness will come in Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.